The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Exodus 12, 12 to 14. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will strike you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Awesome. Well, good morning. My name is Jimmy. If I haven't actually met you yet, uh, my name is Jimmy. Um, It'd be great to get to know you after the service if I can get a chance. Um, Great to have you at church this morning. Uh, We are going through the book of Exodus. We've got maybe, uh, I think, this week and next week left of the book of Exodus. Uh, And we've been doing this for about, I think this is week six of a seven-week series. And we're going to be finishing up next week uh, with the actual Exodus, with the the people of Egypt, actually, sorry, people of Israel leaving the land of Egypt. Um, uh, So today is, uh, yeah, the second last week of that. Lord willing, we'll pick up the rest of the book of Exodus some other time, maybe towards the end of this year, or maybe, um, uh, maybe next year as well. Finishing up with Exodus. And the passage of Scripture that we're looking at today is, I think, one of the most important moments in the history of God's people. We're looking at the tenth and final plague, where the battle between Yahweh, the battle between God, and the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh reaches its climax, reaches its zenith. Uh, This passage is without a doubt one of the hardest parts of Exodus, and yet, at the same time, it presents us with something incredibly beautiful and incredibly relevant to us, as relevant to us now as it was then, back then. So let me ask you, what was a moment in your life that changed everything for you? What was the moment that that thing happened and and as a result, everything changed? Life totally changed as a result. A bit more than 10 years ago, uh, our first first child, our daughter Noah, was born. And that was a moment that changed everything for us, absolutely changed everything. Um, I still obviously remember that very, very vividly. Um, She was born and they said, it's a girl, and I think deep down I knew it was going to be a girl. Like I just had this, it was this wonderful moment. And as she was born, they, they passed her to Kirsty, and I just had this moment where everything changed. Every, every, my entire life changed in, a, in one moment. And the way I can describe it is, I feel like I experienced every single emotion under the sun in one second. Like I feel like I've, I feel I feel like I've just experienced every single like joy and fear and delight and panic and terror and everything all at once, and I just burst into tears. And it wasn't like it wasn't like you know nice kind of like if you took a photo of me, it wasn't like a really nice like tears streaming down my face with a big smile on my face. I had ugly cry. I was like. I just kind of just, my face locked in, my just kind of just froze, and I just like, everything just, it was too much. And everything changed. What was a defining moment for you? It might have been the birth of a child. It could have been your wedding day. It could be the death of a loved one. It might have been news that you received. Could have been really good news. Could have been really bad news. 
What we're looking at today is a moment that made Israel. It was a defining moment for them. And it was in a moment they were instructed to return to and remember again and again. So just to give you a bit of context, a bit of background to the story, um, we've just had the ninth plague. And the ninth plague was darkness. And it was so dark that it could actually, the darkness could be felt. And that descended upon Egypt for three days. And then in Exodus 11, which we kind of uh, glossed over last week, was issues a final warning about the tenth and final plague. And then in chapter 12, the, the tenth plague actually comes. It is delivered. This final plague was the death of the firstborn of every household, right from the lowliest servant to Pharaoh's palace. This was the final showdown between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. The previous nine plagues had left Egypt in tatters, and yet Pharaoh's heart was still hardened towards God. He was unwilling to let the people go. But this was about to change. And this final plague would be so devastating for Pharaoh that Pharaoh himself would actually drive the people of Israel out. Now God actually promised this is exactly how it's going to happen. Pharaoh would go from the stubbornness, he would walk through apprehension, and then finally he would drive the people out. In chapter 12, 30, verse 31, it says, Pharaoh said to Moses and Aaron, Get out immediately. From among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Now, if you're reading through Exodus left to right, that's a massive, that's a massive change in gears in the book of Exodus. That's huge. And it wasn't just Pharaoh, but the Egyptians too drove them out. So verse 33, it says that the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, we're all going to die. And as the Israelites left Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians. So reading from verse 35, the Israelites acted on Moses' word, which he, he gave them in chapter 11, verse 2. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians. Now, that's a strange detail, but it's incredibly important because it provides for us the, the picture of the economic unraveling of Egypt. You see, God's plan was always to establish his people under his, in his place under his blessing, and that involved Egypt. And we can see this back in Genesis 15. If you go back to Genesis 15, and we looked at this uh, towards the end of last year, where God remade the covenant or reestablished the covenant with Abraham, it talks about this exact moment. So Genesis 15, verse 13, it says, But the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. So that there is the storyline of Egypt, the storyline of Exodus. That's what we've been discussing. That's what we've been looking at. Then he says in verse 14, However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. So way back in Genesis 15, God says, Your people, your descendants, Abraham, they're going to be in a land that they don't possess. They're going to be enslaved and oppressed, but I'm going to send them out. 
and they're going to come out with many possessions. God's plan was to establish his people, and Egypt was very much a part of that. It was one way that God was showing his strength. In this very impossible situation, God's people who had been under, the slave, under slavery in Egypt were now being paid by the Egyptians to leave. Can you see that it's just the massive economic reversal that's going on here? They were slaves. They were, they were, they were, it was, they were for profit. It was, a, it, was a, it, was, uh, it was economically a good thing. For, for Egypt to have, to have slaves. And yet, now they're being paid to leave. This is why, I believe, God sent Joseph to Egypt all those years ago. God sent, Egypt, God sent Joseph to Egypt, and as we know, to, to, uh, he, he, was, he went there and he, he actually uh, enabled the survival of Egypt during a really horrible famine. And, during, and because of Egypt's survival during that horrible famine, the people of God survived. Uh, Jacob's family survived. They all moved down to Egypt. But you get the sense that it wasn't just... Because we see, actually, if you read through uh, Genesis, it wasn't just the survival of Egypt. It was actually the prosperity of Egypt. That Egypt came to a point of, of economic prosperity because of Joseph. And now we see that that economic prosperity is going back to God's people and being taken towards Canaan. Like the plagues and what was going on here was that God was actually funding the exodus. So that's a bit of a basic outline of the passage that we're looking at today. Tenth final plague comes along. God's people pack up. They, they plunder Egypt as they leave and they head on their way out. In the, at the beginning of chapter 12, though, we get a set of instructions for how God's people were meant to avoid or be spared from this final tenth plague. It's these instructions that highlight that something far bigger is going on here for mankind. Something far bigger for mankind is taking place on this particular night. And it's on these instructions, it's, it's what's come to be known as the Passover. It's these instructions that I want to spend our time really examining this morning. So Genesis, oh, sorry, Exodus chapter 12 opens with these instructions for what would come to be known as the Passover festival. The Israelites were to take an animal from the flock, either a sheep or a goat. And that animal must be male, it must be a year old, and it must be unblemished. So you have no defect to it at all. They were to take that animal into their homes for four days, and after that, they had to kill that animal, spread its blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses. Then they had to take that animal, take the lamb, roast it with bitter herbs, and eat all of it along with unleavened bread, bread that had no yeast in it that was made without yeast. And they had to be, full, they had to be fully dressed as if they were about to leave with, with their shoes on and their staff in their hands and, and, eat, and eat ready to go, eat in a hurry. And the reason why this special feast was called Passover was because God was going to go throughout the entire land of Egypt and strike down the firstborn of every household. But when he came to a household and he sees the blood, he will pass over that house and the people inside of that house will be spared from that tenth plague. And so there are three, things, three key things from the Passover that I want to draw out from our text this morning. It's this. Firstly, they've got to do it. Secondly, the lamb's got to die. And thirdly, they've got to have this on repeat. The Israelites have got to do it, the lamb's got to die, and they've got to have it on repeat. 
So point number one, they've got to do it. They've got to observe the Passover. The Israelites, for the most part, during the ten plagues, remained largely untouched by the plagues. God spared them on several occasions, and he did this to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel, so that throughout the plagues, there's no way that anybody could say, these are just like natural occurrences, because the, the slaves always seem to be spared from this. Now, God did give the Egyptians, on some occasions, uh, the provision to be spared from the plagues. And we looked at this last week with the seventh plague of hail, that actually that God gave provision for Pharaoh and his household and any of the Egyptians to be spared from the, the, the destruction of the hail. And as we'll see next week, it seems that some of the Egyptians actually do leave with God's people. They do actually walk away from, from Egypt with them. The point here is that being spared from the tenth plague, it, it isn't a case of nationality. It's a case of being obedient to the instructions of God. And the Israelites needed to obey this instruction just as much as the Egyptians. So in chapter 11, when God announces this plague, he does say that the people in the land of Goshen, which is where the Israelites mostly lived, the people in the land of Goshen would be untouched by this tenth plague. And he did this so that there would be understanding that God was sparing his people. And then in chapter 12, verse 13, it says, The blood on the houses will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. You see, the distinguishing mark is not actually about nationality. The distinguishing mark here is evidence, or is evidence of obedience to God's commands. Now, it's not that God stays away from Goshen. It's not that God generally knows where the Israelites live and so he stays away from that area. God comes looking for the mark of the blood. When he sees the mark, he passes over that house. This is one of those uh, scenes from the movie uh, The Prince of Egypt. If you've seen that movie, this is one of those scenes that I think the movie gets right. God's spirit comes down in the form of uh, a kind of silvery white cloud thing and goes and checks every single door. He comes right through the doorway of each house and checks for the blood. And regardless of nationality, a household was only safe if there was blood on the door. The only thing that each household could rely on was the blood of the lamb. The reason behind this, the reason for this, is because the Israelites, like the Egyptians, were sinners. God wasn't on a humanitarian mission to save one race of people from another. He was on the mission of the advancement of his kingdom to save people from his wrath against their sin. The Israelites needed to be covered by the blood of the Lamb because of their sin. And here's the point. Each one of us is a sinner. Our lives have been messed up both by our sin and by our attempts to make ourselves sinless, by our attempts to make ourselves right with God in our own strength, trusting in something other than Jesus Christ to make us right. And the only thing that we can rely on to save us from our sin and the mess we're in is for God to pass over our sins by his blood, by the blood of the Lamb. This is who Jesus is for us. So when, when, Jesus, when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's only by the blood 
of Jesus Christ, that we can be spared from God's wrath. We don't bring anything else to the table. We can't obey our way into God's favor. We don't have anything to offer. Our hands are empty. And if we try and put something in our hands to offer to God as a bit of a payment, as a bit of an earning, then we've missed the point. We can only rely on, and so simply must solely rely on, the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ. So the first point is that the people had to do it. They had to rely on the blood. The second point is this, the lamb's got to die. The lamb had to die. When I was much younger, the idea of a, a family having a small lamb in your midst for a few days sounded really great. As a kid, I'm like, that sounds awesome. Having a, a lamb in your house, that sounds rad. Then killing it three nights later sounded horrible. <laughs> Absolutely horrible. And I wondered... Why didn't they just use red paint? But they could have just used red paint and then that would have, lo- would have looked the same. Wouldn't that be enough for God to pass over that household? Or maybe they could have just used one lamb and, and they could have then made that last like 12 different households. Like, I'm not how much, I don't know how much blood there is in a lamb, but surely like, you, can get, you can get 12 houses out of one lamb. Like, that's, you can make that last a bit. See, that thought in my mind as I think about it now that thought was that God just wanted to know where the Israelites were. He wanted to know where the Israelites were at and where the Egyptians were at. If there was blood on the door, then there was Israelites inside. If there wasn't blood on the door, then that means that there was Egyptians inside. And since God was there to save the Israelites, he just needed to know where the Israelites were and where they weren't. That's what the whole blood, of the door, blood on the door was about. But that's not the case at all. That's not what's going on here. The problem here for the people, the problem here for the people, wasn't that God was unable to tell who was in what house. The problem here for the people is that God was able to tell who was in the house. Sinners were in the house, and when God came down that night to judge, He wasn't just judging Egyptians for being Egyptians. He was judging sinners. He was judging people for their sin. You see, it's not about blood on doorposts. It's about a substitute. The lamb wasn't just dying because they needed blood. The lamb was dying in place of, as a substitute for the eldest child in the house. Now, I never thought about it this week, but just I read in one of the commentaries just how important that lamb would have been for the oldest child in that house. I mean, imagine being the oldest child in the house and seeing this lamb going, that's going to die in my place. Stunning stuff, right? The lamb was about to die in their place. And if, if at this stage, as we think about this, if you're beginning to recoil at the prospect of an innocent lamb dying in the place for a household for sinners... And you start to go, oh, that's, that seems just a bit too much. Then that's good. Because we're starting to understand the weight of the cross of Jesus Christ. An innocent dying for the guilty. You see, the blood on the doorpost was a sign that a sacrifice had been made. And that sacrifice redeemed those on the inside. That sacrifice redeemed those on the inside. It purchased their lives at a cost. 
See, this is the cost of sin. Paul writes this in Romans 6.23. He says the wages of sin is death. There is a real cost to sin. And a lie that we tell ourselves and believe all the time is that when it comes to sin, we're really not that bad. Like, yes, there are some really bad sinners and we can probably know some. There are some really bad sins and we can probably name a few. But, you know, little lies here and there doesn't really hurt. A bit of gossip here and there. Everybody else is doing it, so it's sweet. A little bit of theft, it's fine. It's a victimless crime. Like, that's just a big corporation. They'll never notice that that thing's missing. These things are okay. But we've got to come to terms with the reality that any sin is rebellion against Almighty God. And quite importantly, little sins, if we were to call them little sins, are evidence not just of a sinful heart and a sinful disposition, but also a heart that sinfully excuses its own sinful disposition. If we are willing to say, okay, this is bad, but it's actually not that bad, then that is a really serious sin because we're saying, I'm I'm getting myself off the hook by saying that's actually not that bad. God doesn't care about that. And we know that we're starting to fall into that trap. If we're starting to do that, when we start to compare ourselves to others, good or bad, there is supreme folly in comparing yourself to another person. Am I a sinner? Well, <clears throat> how do I know? Maybe I should compare myself to the person I'm sitting next to, the person at the other end of the row. Maybe I should, who should I be comparing myself to? If we were to compare ourselves to someone like Hitler, we're all saints. But if we were then to compare ourselves to someone like Mother Teresa, none of us are saints. It's folly to compare ourselves to others. The folly of comparing ourselves to others is that we either underestimate our sin or we underestimate God's power to save us from that sin. And so there's only one comparison that we should ever make, and that's with Jesus. Are you a sinner? Compare yourself to Jesus. And no one is taking selfies at the foot of the cross. No one's pointing to themselves saying, look how good I am as their saviour hangs bearing their their sins next to them. This is why we should be seeking Jesus in his word. Not just trying to remember the Jesus that we got taught in Sunday school, not just kind of putting together a bit of a collage of all the things that we've heard about Jesus, but actually going to Jesus in his word. We should be seeking God in his word, seeking God through prayer, because as we do, we'll find that the word of God is like a mirror, and it will actually hold up Jesus to us, and we can compare ourselves to Jesus, and we'll realize, wow, we actually fall short of the glory of God, and we are pointed towards the only way that we can be made righteous. When we open our Bibles, we should be challenged. We should look at Jesus and go, I don't measure up. And we should also be encouraged by looking at Jesus and going, he's the only way that I am made righteous. The Apostle Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1. He says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, redeemed from your sinful life. Not not redeemed by perishable things like silver and gold. Those things are perishable. Those things are worthless. You were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. This is who Jesus is for us. 
when we get confronted with the realities of our sin, we get the incredible opportunity to look at the God who takes away sin, who passes over sin. And so one of the blessings that Christians count as a blessing and a kindness is when God, by His grace, exposes the sin in our hearts and shows us that He can carry that now. We don't have to carry that anymore. That's a blessing that always begins bitter to the taste. But its aftertaste is everlasting and it's sweeter than honey. So the Israelites have got to do it. The lamb's got to die and finally it's got to be on repeat. So the point here is that this Passover meal wasn't a once-off thing but had to be repeated on an annual basis. Reading from Exodus uh, chapter 12, verses 24 to 27, It says, Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you are to observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. So the people knelt low and worshipped. So the Passover meal, including sacrificing the lamb and all the things that went along with it, that was, to be on an, an, that was to be repeated on an annual basis for the people of Israel, even when they entered the land of Canaan. And the reason why is because this event was going to define them. This event was going to make them who they were, the saved people of God, the people that God saved out of slavery. And I said this throughout the series, but if you read through the Old Testament over and over again, when God meets with somebody, it says so often, God refers to himself as the God who who saved his people out of the land of Egypt, saved them from slavery. God gets so much mileage out of this event, and he continues to do so today. The purpose of this, of this annual festival was to keep God's salvation, God's, the fact that God saved them, in the forefront of their minds. In fact, this is how they organized their calendar from then on. This month that they held this in became the first month of the year from that point on. That's how definitive it was. And they had to keep it first and foremost in their minds because of how perpetually forgetful we are. We are so, I know I speak on behalf of everybody. We forget the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. We perpetually forget how wonderful Jesus is. We are so fickle, and it so often happens that we forget God's incredible love for us. Like it's not automatic, it's not like it's not autopilot. It's just we forget how much God loves us. This is why one of the best things we can be doing with our time is just to be preaching the gospel to ourselves. Like if you're aspiring for anything in 2022, it's become a pro at knowing how much God loves you. Just that. Just remembering, knowing how much God loves you. See, here's the thing. We don't have to sacrifice a lamb once a year anymore. We're not commanded to do that anymore because Jesus fulfills this for us. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 5. He calls Jesus our Passover lamb that has been sacrificed for us. We have been commanded to remember Jesus Christ, to remember the gospel. And we do this in one way. We do this by taking communion. 
We take communion because Jesus, on the night before he was killed, shared the Passover meal with his disciples and he told them that his blood was going to be poured out in the new covenant. Jesus was going to be sacrificed for all of mankind forever. One of the things I learned this week as I was preparing for this, I've never seen it before, but it was about the animal substitute. An animal sacrifice as a substitute follows a really clear uh, pattern and trend in the Old Testament. So in Genesis 22, when Abraham was about to sacrifice his only son Isaac, God stopped him and provided a ram as a substitute. One ram for one person. Here in Exodus, a lamb is provided as a substitute for the household, one ram for the whole household. Later on, in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple and the Day of Atonement, an animal will be sacrificed as a, sacrificed as a, as a substitute for Israel's sins, one animal for the whole nation. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, became our Passover sacrifice, one lamb for the whole world. That's, how, that's the pattern that it follows. Jesus sacrificed his life to redeem us from slavery to sin. Which means we don't need to, we don't have to worry. We don't have to, we don't have to listen to sin anymore. Sin which used to command us to do something, to, to, to obey, we, that's not our masters anymore. That's our Egypt and we're, we're free from that. Jesus has redeemed us. Our sinful nature, we don't have to obey that anymore. We've got a new king, a, a new savior, a new king who, who rules over us. And like the first Passover, our salvation defines us. It becomes the moment that defines our lives from that point onwards. The gospel is the definitive thing in our life. It defines the decisions that we make. The gospel defines where we live and how, and how we live. The gospel defines our budgets. It defines how we spend our money. It defines the kinds of relationships that we build. The gospel of Jesus Christ has something incredibly important to say about the clothes that we wear and where we buy them from. It has something to say about the way that we respond to hostility. It has something to, do, to say about the way that we receive praise. The gospel has a bearing <clears throat> on how we drive. It has a bearing on how we treat the cashier at Coles. It has something to say about what we say on Facebook. The gospel is what gives us our posture towards world events. The gospel is what gives us our posture towards the government. The gospel is what gives us the posture towards our enemies. The gospel defines the way that we forgive and extend grace to one another. It is the definitive thing in our lives. If you're a Christian, then the gospel of Jesus Christ is the definitive thing for your life. Why? Because God's love for you is the truest thing about you. The fact that God loves you is truer than your hair color or your height or your nationality. God's love for you is eternal. It defines us because through Jesus Christ we are loved by God more than we could ever be loved by anything else. God's love for us is bulletproof. It's everlasting. It's ongoing. God loves you more than you love anything. He loves you so much that he wants to have 
a relationship with you. He wants you to be with him for eternity. Like if you just think about how long eternity is, it's quite a long time. And if you want to spend time with somebody, like if I really want to spend like, you know, a whole week with somebody, that says something about how I feel about that person, right? That I really must want to spend time with them. The fact that God wants to spend eternity with us, what does it say about us? It says that his love for us is bigger than we can ever imagine. And so he sent his son to die as our substitute in our place for our sins so that we as broken people would be regarded by God as being just as perfect and holy as Jesus is. And he would bring us into heaven and we could spend eternity with him. Now, as I say that, I suspect that for some of you, your heart might have just sunk a little bit. Because deep down, you feel that the gospel isn't that definitive for you. Sure, you're a Christian. You believe that Jesus died for you. But if you're honest, the gospel, God's love for us, is one of the furthest things from our mind. And on most days, you still feel like a bit of a hopeless failure. Your salvation doesn't feel like a definitive thing for you. If that's you... Don't fret. You're in good company and you're not a hopeless case. You are not a hopeless case. For many, the issue is that we've, so- <clears throat> we've lost sight of our need for Jesus. We've become blind to the reality of our sin. It might be that we've just rather not think about it, not deal with it, It might be that our sin gets downgraded in our lives and in our minds because we know plenty of other people who struggle with sin. It could be that we've just become so accustomed to comfort and the things of this world that we forget the cost of our own sin. But here's the thing. Until we recognize the cost of our sin and the fact that Jesus Christ paid for it, we're never going to see our need for Jesus. If that's you, you're not a hopeless case, but what you do need and what we each need is for God in his kindness and mercy to reveal to us that our only hope is actually in him. And the only way that we can, the only way the infinite gap between us and God can ever be crossed is by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And he has crossed that gap. He has crossed that gap. He has taken our place away from God and he has made it possible. He has made possible the only way to Jesus. And so what we're going to do this morning as we finish up is we're going to spend a bit of time in quiet confession of sin. Now, just in case your heart started beating, I'm not going to ask you to confess your sins to the person sitting next to you. Just breathe a sigh of relief. It's okay. That being said... (laughs) I, you need to know this as your pastor. I genuinely believe that confessing our sins to one another is the best way to kick that sin in the teeth. One of the best ways to kick that sin in the teeth. What we will do is I'm going to pray a prayer of, conf- of confession. And the words are going to be on the screen in just a few moments. And we're going to confess, we're going to pray this prayer of confession as we take communion. And then we're going to spend a few moments in quiet confession and we'll take communion the reason why we take communion is to remember Jesus Christ 
remember the gospel that makes the greatest claim upon our lives because it reminds us Jesus died for us as a substitute on the cross to bring us into a perfect relationship with God the Father. And that is the truest thing about us, God's love for us, and that can never be taken away. So we take communion, and we do this on a weekly basis because of our tendency to forget, our tendency to, to, to forget the love of God for us, and because there is an enemy who would rather that we just forget it altogether. But as we do take communion, which we will do in just a few moments, I want to encourage you to think about your own sin. I want you to think about the stuff in your life that separates you from God. And maybe you've not actually confessed this to Jesus Christ before. And as you think about it, and if we take the cracker, and if we take the juice, we're going to let the truth of the gospel outshine the realities of our sin. God has passed over our sin. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.